0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 2nd, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I would just like to know that I had spoken to Pastor Mark Downey and his wife on the telephone the other night. He is um, still very ill as most of our listeners understand and very much in need of our prayers as we've already seen in our earlier presentations of Ecclesiastes the preacher frequently employs skepticism as a method of teaching and he also uses much repetition by which he can introduce new aspects for each of the subjects upon which he lectures So here once again, in chapter 9 of the work, we have more skepticism and further repetition as he returns to topics which he had already discussed in its earlier chapters. But now his skepticism is magnified beyond pessimism where he expresses an attitude of nihilism and it is apparent that this too is a rhetorical prevarication, since it stands in contradiction to the preacher's earlier declarations concerning the works of men and the judgment of God. For example, in chapter 3, the preacher had said, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work, or for every deed now he shall once again urge man to consider God and judgment and the necessity of obedience to God for reason of judgment in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 but he only hints at these things here in this chapter for instance in verse 8 where he exhorts his readers to let thy garments always be white and let thy head lack no ointment the reasons for such an exhortation are not explicitly given until we come to his final conclusions in chapter 12. In the meantime the preacher is using skepticism and nihilism as rhetorical devices and his true purpose is to illustrate the vanity of man and the futility of life without God We must also remember that the preacher had already proclaimed that it was God himself who purposely subjected man to vanity in order to be exercised in travail in chapters 1 and 3 of this work, and therefore there must be a greater purpose for the exercise that is our obligation reading Ecclesiastes to recognize that while the preacher laments the vanity of life in the travail of man at the same time there must be a reason as to why he continually refers to the judgment of God and concludes that there is a necessity for man to keep his commandments doing this the preacher illustrates the fact that there is indeed a greater purpose to life without actually describing it in words. So all of his lamentation concerning vanity is a rhetorical prevarication, because all is not truly vain if there is a greater purpose to life. With this we shall commence with our presentation of Ecclesiastes chapter 9 for all this i considered in my heart even to declare all of this that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of god no man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them and this is a very obscure passage which is sort of difficult to to interpret in brenton's septuagint the clause at the first part of this verse is found at the end of the last verse in chapter 8 as a conclusion where it says for I applied all this to my heart and my heart has seen all of this the text of Ralph's Greek Septuagint also properly places the words here at the beginning of this chapter interpreting them as we do and as the King James translators did as if they are meant to introduce what follows As for the last clause of this verse, where the King James Version has, No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. We would translate it to say also of love and hate, man knows nothing of all which is before them. The word which the King James Version translated as a negative particle, "no" is an adverb meaning nothing or not while some translations have before him it seems to us that the preposition and plural noun <coughs> which are translated as before them refer to love and hate and not to the man the man is singular in the text among other examples the same word translated as before them appears in 1 samuel chapter 18 verse 16 in a similar context, where it says, But all Israel and Judah loved David, because he went out and came in before them. There, the plural construct refers to Israel and Judah, and not to David. So here it refers to love and hatred, and not to man. Therefore, the preacher seems to be informing his readers that even the righteous and wise man is ignorant as to whether his works will be loved or hated by God as they are in his hand so now he laments the plight of the righteous and he says all things come alike to all there is one event to the righteous and to the wicked to the good and to the clean and to the unclean to him that sacrifices and to him that sacrifices not as is the good so is the sinner and he that swears as he that feareth an oath he that feareth an oath is simply the man who is afraid to swear christians are told not to swear but to make every word true in james chapter 5 Once again, the preacher employs skepticism in his discourse, lamenting the plight of the righteous because, from an immediate and worldly perspective, they seem to die no differently than the wicked, the impious, and the sinner. Furthermore, speaking even of the righteous, since all men do sin and fall short of the glory of God, the preacher adds, This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yeah, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and the madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. And this must be the original inspiration for the profane modern adage, that life sucks, and then you die. The preacher used this same word for madness, coupled with folly. In contrast to wisdom, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, where he said, And I gave my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increases knowledge increases sorrow then in chapter two he used the same word again to describe how he himself had turned to behold wisdom and madness and folly that madness and folly to which he had turned was a life of licentiousness and mirth and the giving of himself over to wine now here in this passage He associates that sort of madness with evil and suggests that it is found in the hearts of all men. Next, his skepticism leads to nihilism and he declares that there is nothing for the dead and suggests that hope is only for the living. For to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion and of course the antithesis to this skepticism is found in the epistles of Paul in the letters to the Corinthians where Paul had said that if only in this life we have hope in Christ then we are the most miserable of all men the preacher had asserted in Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 in an earlier display of such pessimism, that men were no different than beasts. Then, with skepticism, he asserted, all go unto one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Then he asked, who knows the spirit of man that goes upward, and the spirit of the beast that goes downward to the earth? Now he continues his comparison of men to beasts in an allegory as he raises this same subject again in an allegory which explains that from a worldly perspective the lowest of beasts while it lives is better than the most noble of beasts which have died. So adding to his pessimism both fatalism and further nihilism he says for the living know that they shall die but the dead know not anything neither have they any more reward for the memory of them is forgotten the inevitability of death has also been a persistent theme throughout ecclesiastes underscoring the perceived transientness or vanity of man the preacher had already elaborated upon this in chapter two where he said in part from verse sixteen for there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever seeing that that which is now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten and how dieth the wise man as the fool there's no difference now speaking of the carnal feelings of man he adds that also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion for ever in anything that is done under the sun. As we interpret the preacher to the, the preacher, I'm sorry. As we interpret the preacher to express in verse one, after his death, man does not know whether he will face love or hatred for his works the love and hate of god transcend this life however the love and hatred and also the envy of man are all vanity they are not necessarily the love and hatred of god and they must perish along with the man himself after the man is departed from this world his love and hatred no longer have efficacy in the world While in the revelation of Joshua Christ the souls of the dead are depicted as praying for their avenging in the world, those prayers are evidently made in harmony with the love and hatred of God. So the preacher continues, Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. The preacher had already suggested in the opening verse of this chapter that man does not know before he dies whether his works will be loved or hated by God. So he is not necessarily contradicting himself here. Rather there is no thy, there is no second person pronoun in the final clause of this passage in Hebrew and we will quantify that momentarily. We must read the last clause of the passage to say, for already God is pleased with this work, which we would interpret to refer to man's enjoyment of life's simple pleasures. However, this reading is not supported by the Septuagint. Breton's Septuagint has verse 1 of this chapter to read, I saw the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. Yeah, there is no man that knows either love or hatred, though all are before their face. We would interpret that to mean that man stands before the love and hatred of God, but does not know them, or whether his works will will attract one or the other. Then Breton has this verse, verse 7, to say, Go, eat thy bread with mirth and drink thy wine with a joyful heart for now God has favorably accepted thy works both translations translations of both those passages by Brenton are relatively faithful to the Septuagint Greek if we were to accept the interpretations of the Septuagint we must imagine that here the preacher also offers a prevarication If there is nothing for the dead, then man has nothing better to do than to eat and to drink, and to imagine that God has accepted his works. On the other hand, if Solomon is only concerned for the righteous, then the next line is quite relevant, as only the righteous can have garments which are always white. Let thy garments be always white, and let thy head lack no ointment. In Revelation chapter 3, we see a few of the saints in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The admonition to let the head lack no ointment may be an exhortation for the Israelites, to bear in mind the anointing which he or she has received from Yahweh. For instance where it says in 1 John chapter 2 that the anointing which ye have received of him abides in you. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 10 where the term anointed refers to Israel and it says Yahweh shall judge the ends of the earth and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed similar use of the term in reference to the children of Israel is found throughout the Psalms from the 28th Psalm Yahweh is their strength and he is the saving strength of his anointed save thy people and bless thine inheritance feed them also and lift them up forever the anointed collectively are his people. They have heads which should lack no ointment allegorically speaking. Let thy garments always be white allegorically speaking we should act righteously at all times so the white garments and ointment being representative of the children of God in their obedience The preacher seems to be informing his readers that they must imagine that God accepts their works, because they have no other choice. This is fatalistic in a sense, as it informs them that their actions are predetermined and therefore their destinies are inevitable. Then, because their fates are inevitable, they may as well eat their bread and drink their wine with joy. So he continues in this line of advice live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity which he has given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity for that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun the preacher had lamented his labor in chapter two of this work that he could not take it with him when he died and must therefore leave it to another so in that place he concluded there is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor this also I saw that it was from the hand of God and we saw from Deuteronomy that it was a blessing of God if a man could enjoy the fruits of his own labor earlier in Ecclesiastes the preacher also lamented his mirth and his licentiousness that ultimately it was also vanity and therefore it was foolish he lauded the man who kept his eyes in his head over the man who fulfilled the desire of his eyes we have contended that this preacher is Solomon himself writing after his own sinful experiences where in his later years he had taken a thousand women, in addition to his original wife, the wife of his youth. So here he also advises morality, exhorting his readers to live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest, which he has given thee under the sun. Similarly, in Proverbs chapter 5 we read in part, Let thy fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. Now, of course, it is not always possible for us to do that, especially in the modern world. However, this is the ideal that we should all promote and live up to when we can he offers one final exhortation and reference to death whatsoever thy hand findeth to do do it with thy might for there is no work nor device nor knowledge nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest the word translated as might may also be ability as it was translated in the king james version at Ezra chapter 2 verse 69, and Daniel chapter 1, verse 4, the living have an advantage over the dead, in that they can do good works, and they can seek knowledge and wisdom, but once they are dead, they can no longer do these things. However, they are judged for the works which they do in life, so they had better take advantage of the opportunity. So even though the preacher is projecting attitudes of skepticism and fatalism and nihilism, he nevertheless recognizes that there is a God who judges the works of men, and that man has a need to sustain a degree of morality. This concession leads to the inevitable conclusion that man needs to keep the commandments of God, because in the end there really must be something more than vanity or none of this would matter why keep the commandments why care about your wife why care about keeping your garments white why care about the anointing no purpose now the preacher turns to another subject the seemingly random manner in which men come to stumble and fail when they should have the advantage, or to succeed when they have no advantage, or even to die, which happens in circumstances beyond their control and often to the surprise of the living. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, But time and chance happens to them all. These are arguably the most famous of Solomon's words. Faster men may lose races. Stronger men may lose fights. Men of skill do not always succeed in profiting from their works. And wise men very often remain in poverty. Then, in addition to these challenges, these trials, men never know when it is that they may die. For man also knoweth not his time. As the fishes that are taken in an evil net, the net's good to the hungry, but it's evil to the fishes. And as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time, a time that may be appropriate to God, or good for a man's enemies, but evil to the man, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them. Death may come at any moment, and no man knows when it will happen. This is the fifth time in Ecclesiastes that the preacher advised men to enjoy their food and their drink, and that there were no more I'm sorry, and and that there were no enjoyments more worthwhile, because all is vanity. In chapter 2 we read, For what has man of all his labor, and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he has labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. And then in chapter 3, I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. And once again in chapter 8, Then I commended mirth, because a man has no better thing under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be merry, for that shall abide with him of his labor the days of his life which God giveth him under the sun. Every time the preacher advised that men should seek their enjoyment from simple things such as food and wine and the fruits of their own labor, he stressed the fact that the ability to do so was a gift from God and it is no different here but the preacher once again adds to the idea as he makes his repetition he adds to the idea the enjoyment of one's wife as well as the necessity to do so while keeping one's garments white and one's head anointed which we would interpret as an exhortation to morality interestingly in Proverbs chapter 31 Solomon advised wine for the poor but not for those in positions of responsibility there we read the words of King Lemuel the prophecy that his mother taught him what my son and what the son of my womb and what the son of my vows give not thy strength unto women nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law, and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. This will be an underlying theme of chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes. Many commentators call the Lemuel of Proverbs 31 an unknown king. That's pretty foolish. They're fools. Rather, Lemuel is Solomon using an epithet for himself, which means for God. In that passage from Proverbs we see another parallel in the life of Solomon, that in his younger days he knew enough not to give his strength unto women, and that strong drink causes men to forget the law and to become corrupted. Yet here in Ecclesiastes, we see the preacher admit having given himself over to wine and having had great experience with many women, as we read Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 28. As we have explained in earlier portions of this commentary, Proverbs demonstrates that Solomon knew better than to go off into the sin which is described of him in 1 Kings. And Ecclesiastes seems to be his confession and apology or perhaps his justification for that sin now Solomon turns the topic once again elaborating upon yet another subject which he had mentioned earlier to speak of the plight of a poor man who is wise but who is not appreciated this wisdom have I also seen under the sun and it seemed great unto me. There was a little city, and few men within it, and there came a great king against it, and besieged it, and built great bulwarks against it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no man remembered that same poor man. Then I said, Wisdom is better than strength nevertheless the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard isn't that the truth as we had explained earlier in these presentations when the preacher mentions wisdom he is speaking of the wisdom of God and not merely the cunning of men in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 he wrote it is good that thou shouldest take hold of this yea also from this withdraw not thine hand for he that fears God shall come forth of them all. Wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city. The statements in these verses are not disassociated by the verse numbers or the punctuation. Wisdom strengthens the wise, and he that fears God has wisdom and will come forth of them all. He that does not fear God is a fool so the preacher now proclaims the words of wise men are heard in quiet more than the cry of him that rules among fools wisdom is better than weapons of war but one sinner destroys much good wisdom from God is better than weapons of war just as the preacher had previously said that wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city then where he says one sinner destroys much good we must notice that he says that in contradistinction to his remarks on the words of wise men so that by, by that comparison We can see the preacher's perception of what wisdom is, whereby we know that wisdom is the fear of and obedience to God. The wise man is the opposite of the sinner, so the fool is a sinner, or the sinner is a fool. Now, once again, as we commence with chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes, the preacher revisits another of his earlier subjects as he turns to compare folly with wisdom and honor. However, this is all in relation to governance. That topic he does not depart from, as we shall see. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 verse 1 Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So does a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. This is very much like the saying that a little, uh, that, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling, that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I can't say three words in a row that begin with the letter L. Throughout this work, we have seen the preacher consider folly to be mirth and licentiousness. A man may be perceived as being wise and worthy of honor, but if he lives a sinful lifestyle, his entire reputation is tainted. Now another allegory is set forth having the same meaning. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left it cannot escape mention that the left has always been associated with evil with so-called progressivism which is a departure from law and custom in favor of experiments in permissiveness and even licentiousness it is not a coincidence that in Isaiah, the vile are said to have been called liberal, and we see the liberal position as being the left in politics. Neither can it be a coincidence that at the return of Christ, the goat nations are found on the left. The Latin word sinister, which originally meant left, also referred to something evil, the meaning which it now has in English. It also referred to things unfavorable, improper, or perverse, according to the New College Latin and English Dictionary by John Troutman. Today we continue to find liberals, progressives, and perverts, almost exclusively on the left, which proves that they are also fools and devoid of the wisdom of God the preacher continues Yea also when he that is a fool walketh by the way his wisdom fails him and he says to everyone that he is a fool the fool need not speak the words he need not make the admission his actions speak for themselves proclaiming on his behalf that he is a fool when you see a man walking down a street in a pink shirt and his wife has a butch haircut there we have it that's one example one example that I see all the time from proverbs chapter 10 blessings are upon the head of the just but violence covers the mouth of the wicked the memory of the just is blessed but the name of the wicked shall rot the wise in heart will receive commandments but a prating fool shall fall he that walks uprightly walks surely but he that perverts his ways shall be known he that winks with the eye causes sorrow he that winks with the eye is someone who overlooks somebody else's sin he that winks with the eye causes sorrow but a prating fool shall fall the mouth of a righteous man is a well of life as Christ spoke about the springs of waters which emanated from him but violence covers the mouth of the wicked hate stirs hate stirreth up strifes but love covers all sins in the lips of him that has understanding wisdom is found but a rod is for the back of him that is void of understanding wise men lay up knowledge but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction once again the meaning of the next passage is debatable if the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee leave not thy place for yielding pacifies great offenses. Yielding pacifies great offenses. Breton Septuagint has the end of the clause to read. For soothing will put an end to great offenses. We may read the Greek to say, Because healing shall put to rest great offenses. The early Alexandrian Christian writer Origen cited this verse, and as his citation is translated in the popular edition of the Ante-Nicene Fathers by Alexander Roberts and James Donaldson, it reads to state, If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place, for soundness will restrain many transgressions. This seems better to agree with what the preacher said about the wise man in the previous chapter, contrasting the wise man with the voice of he who rules over fools. What follows is a footnote to the first of two citations from Ecclesiastes 10.4, as it is cited by origin. And found in the Antinicene Fathers edition of Origen's De Principis, Book 3, Chapter 2, where they begin by citing the King James Version rather than the version, the better version offered by Origen. For yielding pacifieth great offenses. The words in the text are in Latin "Cuniam sanitis compesit multa peccata which means because health restrains many offenses the Vulgate has curatio faciet cesare peccata maxima which means treatment will stop great offenses and the Septuagint reads and I'm sorry for this but I have to do it iama catapassi amartius megalus which But which basically means treatment will stop great offenses, or healing will stop great offenses. While the Masoretic text has the word marpe, which they then equate in parentheses, meaning the editors of the Antenicene Fathers who wrote the note, then equate in parentheses to the word curatio. The word which is translated as yielding in the King James Version is marpe, which corresponds to the Latin curatio, from which is derived our word cure, and which the newer editions of the Strong's Hebrew Lexicon define as a healing, a health, health, a healing, or a cure. That's how the newer editions of the Strong's Hebrew Lexicon define marpe, the Hebrew word, and that corresponds with the Greek of the Septuagint, where it has iama. With this we see, and, and that means a cure, or a healing, or even health. With this we see that Origen's original version of the passage, as it is translated by Roberts and Donaldson, is probably the most agreeable, the best translation I'd seen, where Origen wrote that in the book of Ecclesiastes 2, meaning also, Solomon says, If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place, for soundness will restrain many transgressions the King James Version causes confusion in my opinion the preacher was not advising men to be pusillanimous he was not telling them to yield to an unruly king it can however be read as a warning that yielding pacifies transgressions in other words don't yield or you will pacify transgressions the preacher was exhorting wise men to stand up to such rulers leave not thy place or do not yield and admonish them according to that wisdom which is from God This we know from Proverbs chapter 12 where the same Hebrew word marpeh is translated as health in both the King James Version and in the New American Standard Bible where we read there is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So verse 4 here should state that if the ru- spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place, for soundness will restrain many transgressions. So if the King James Version is not dishonest, it can at least be confused. One may be confused to think that the King James version of the Bible advises you to yield to an evil king rather than to offer him correction by the Word of God and that's the real meaning of the passage Solomon who was also a king advises wise men here to hold their ground and to correct rulers by that wisdom which is found in the Word of God. The preacher continues to speak of evil rulers There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, as an error which proceeds from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity, and the rich sit in low place. The preacher laments the fact that fools are set into high offices, while the quote-unquote rich are set low. Most commentators esteem the preacher to be referring to The material rich here. Material wealth. However, that is not necessarily the case. I do not accept that. From the same writer, we read in Proverbs chapter 14, Righteousness keeps him that is upright in the way, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. There is that makes himself rich, yet has nothing there is that makes himself poor yet has great riches the man who makes himself rich is the righteous man who seeks the wisdom of God but of material possessions he has nothing the rich that make themselves poor are wealthy men who are devoid of wisdom so in reality they are poor and foolish These men, these are the men typically appointed to high office by kings and presidents. The preacher continues with another enigma. I have seen servants upon horses and princes walking as servants upon the earth. Solomon is making another reference to the character of men and not necessarily to their status. However, here it appears that the character of both types is being described as good. Men upon horses are wealthy, but they can act as servants if they are obedient to God. Servants upon the earth may indeed be princes and not even be aware of how their God views them. This is what the preachers seem to be proclaiming where he said at the beginning of chapter 9 in our amended version that the righteous and the wise in their works are in the hand of God also of love and hate no man knows nothing of all which is before them as Joshua Christ himself proclaimed in Matthew chapter 23 but he that is great among you shall be your servant and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted the preacher goes on to lament life's seeming incongruities and the often unforeseen consequences unintended consequences of the action of man he that digs a pit shall fall into it and whoso breaks a hedge a serpent shall bite him whoso removes stone shall be hurt therewith and he that cleaves wood shall be endangered thereby From the beginning of the chapter, the preacher began to compare the wise and fools. Perhaps the preacher was comparing the character of the wise in verse 7, and now he has turned to compare the actions of fools, or to, I should say, contrast the actions of fools, that they shall reap what they sow. Therefore, it is plausible that he that digs a pit dug it to entrap men and fell into it himself likewise he that breaks the hedge does it to steal something from his neighbor and the stones spoken of may indeed refer to boundary stones moved dishonestly the reference to he that cleaveth wood by itself is quite obscure However, the meaning is elucidated in the next verse. If the iron be blunt and he does not wet the edge, wet, W-H-E-T, is sort of an archaic word for sharpen. If the iron be blunt and he does not wet the edge, then he must put to more strength. But wisdom is profitable. To, di- to direct in other words wisdom is profitable to direct the course of one's actions perhaps there should not have been a sentence break between verses 9 and 10 and he that cleaves wood shall be endangered thereby if the iron be blunt and he does not sharpen the edge and he must put to more strength a man with wisdom would know how to use would know enough to use a sharp tool and therefore he would not have to resort to brute force to fell the tree surely the I'm sorry no I'm tripping on S's instead of L's surely the serpent will bite without enchantment and a babbler is no better. Here we see our interpretation is correct that the preacher is indeed still contrasting the fool to the wise and he says the words of a wise man's mouth are gracious but the lips of a fool will swallow up himself the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness and the end of his talk is mischievous madness We find similar admonitions in Proverbs, chapter 10, from verse 14. Wise men lay up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. And skipping to verse 16. The labor of the righteous tends to life, the fruit of the wicked to sin. He is in a way of life that keeps instruction, but he that refuses repu- reproof err but he errs that refuses reproof he that hides hatred with lying lips and he that utters a slander is a fool in the multitude of words there wanteth not sin but he that refrains his lips is wise that's relevant to the next passage here in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 the tongue of the just is as choice silver The heart of the wicked is little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for want of wisdom. The blessing of Yahweh, it makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. It is as sport to a fool to do mischief, but a man of understanding has wisdom. It's a sport of a fool to move boundary stones and break hedges. The fear of the wicked... It shall come upon him, but the desire of the righteous shall be granted. Here we also see, in the mention of the lips of the righteous that feed many, and the blessings of Yahweh that maketh rich, that the wealth spoken of here in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 is not necessarily material wealth. The preacher continues to talk of the foolish, a fool also is full of words a man cannot tell what shall be and what shall be after him who can tell the assertion is repeated from Ecclesiastes chapters 6 and 8 in chapter 6 it appears in the context of the many foolish and lustful pursuits of life which increase vanity and for which man is not better off in the end in chapter 8 it is used in relation to the wise man who already knows not that which shall be, and that nobody can tell him what would come thereafter. Here it appears to be used in relation to the fool who seeks not the wisdom of God, yet is nevertheless full of many words. Knowing what the future holds and conducting his life without the wisdom of God, he is no better than a babbler and a biting serpent so the wise should keep him away. The labor of the foolish wearieth every one of them, because he knows not how to go to the city. And this is a really obscure passage, but I'm pretty sure I have a proper interpretation. This may mean that the fool cannot accomplish even the beginning of urbane tasks. When the preacher began this part of his dissertation, he was comparing the wise man to the fools who are appointed posts in government. And the comparison is still the subject here, as we shall see in the verses which follow. In the ancient world, and this is especially evident in the Latin use of certain terms, the urbane, were the sophisticated and courteous. So we had the term urban from the Latin word urbanus. The rural folk were the backwards and uneducated. So we had the word pagan from the Greek word pagus or hill. A pagus is a hill. From that word came the Latin words. Paganus and Pagus, which describe the country dweller or villager, someone who is rustic and therefore is perceived as being simple or unlearned. The Greek word Pagus is a hill, so pagans were the original hillbillies. Now we shall see that the fools which Solomon is describing are indeed those who are found in positions of power. Woe to thee, O land, when thy child is a king and thy princes eat in the morning. Customarily, only, I'm sorry, woe to thee, O land, when thy king is a child and thy princes eat in the morning. Customarily, only bread was eaten in the morning generally even among Romans and Greeks as well as Hebrews the wealthier Greeks and Romans sometimes added some fruit or wine to their breakfast we often in Rome bread often in Rome breakfast was only what we would call a pancake we see the Hebrew custom is expressed in scripture in Exodus chapter 16 where we read in verse 8 and Moses said This shall be when Yahweh shall give you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full. For that Yahweh hears your murmurings, which ye murmur against him, and what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against Yahweh. Then, again a little later in a chapter, in verse 11, And Yahweh spoke unto Moses, saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak unto them, saying, At evening, At evening ye shall eat flesh, and in the morning ye shall be filled with bread, and ye shall know that I am Yahweh your God. So it is likely that where the preacher refers to princes who eat in the morning, he is speaking of princes who eat festively in the morning, who wine and dine on flesh and other luxuries early in the day that they are fools, who rather than working for the benefit of the kingdom, have taken to feasting and mirth. So in contrast, he says, Blessed art thou, O land, when thy king is the son of nobles, and thy princes eat in due season, for strength and not for drunkenness a king who is a child may simply be a man who is uneducated and immature who is not adept in the functions of governance in contrast a king who is the son of nobles is ostensibly properly trained and educated to assume his position princes who eat in due season and who are sober are fit to responsibly administer a kingdom so going back to our original interpretation of these two parties we had fools and the rich and Solomon lamented that fools were elevated into office while the rich were kept in low places so we see by now that the rich the rich truly are those who are rich in wisdom and not in wealth the preacher continues by much slothfulness the building decays and through the idleness of the hands the house drops through when fools govern a kingdom and squander their time and resources in luxury it is likely to fall into a state of decay the building and the house are allegories for the kingdom itself in the hands of slothful rulers a feast is made for laughter and wine maketh merry, but money answers all things." And this is a continuation of the same admonishment. This verse is often removed from its context by interpreters who would justify abusing the power of money to fulfill one's desires. This is talking about the power of money, being able to fulfill one's desires. But in a correct context, it should be understood along with the verses which precede it, especially verse 18 concerning slothfulness and the idleness of hands. The entire passage is comparing foolish rulers with wise ones and describing how men will follow either sort because either sort has money. So rather than work, working diligently to preserve the house, which is the kingdom, <coughs> the foolish king and the princes who enjoy luxuries would spend money and more money often money which is raised from the poor of their kingdom in order to maintain themselves in mirth and in drunkenness and if that is not an explanation of what is going on in Washington today I don't know what is the preacher concludes curse not the king no not in thy thought and curse not the rich in thy bedchamber For a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which has wings shall tell the matter. For most of our history, cursing one's rulers was bound to cost one's head. Cursing wise and godly rulers, one is certainly acting unrighteously. Cursing foolish and slothful rulers will nevertheless cause one trouble if he is found out that is the substance of this warning however the law prevents one from cursing either sort of ruler as we will read Exodus chapter 2 verse 28 to say thou shalt not revile the judges nor curse the ruler of thy people as we had explained in our last presentation of the series in part six people get the government they deserve because government is a punishment from Yahweh a punishment upon the unrighteous this concludes our presentation and commentary on Ecclesiastes chapters 9 and 10 Yahweh willing we shall return with our final presentation of this work soon we will be on a road for the next two weekends and will likely present something from Clifton-Emaheuser or perhaps Bertrand Compare as we travel so I don't know when I will get back to Ecclesiastes probably in about three weeks and I really don't even know what I'm doing yet tomorrow so maybe I could have some suggestions in the chat server after the program tonight if I'm fortunate praise Yahweh the God of Israel the eternal enemy of the Jews